Well, good morning. Uh, children's church are heading out, so if you're wondering what's going on with the kiddos, uh, if you have kids you'd like to send to children's church, you can do that. We just ask that you pick them up before you leave. It's always a nice thing. Um, but we're doing something a little bit different today. If you're visiting with us, uh, my name is Mike Urchin. I'm the pastor here at Harvest Hill. And uh, I don't usually have whiteboards all around me, but you'll understand why I do here in a second. Um, I'm, I'm excited for this morning and the message that we're, we're going to be going through. Uh, we have a theme word you can kind of see. It's a little bit dark. I'll have to change that next week, I guess. So our theme word for 2020 and launching is the word commit. And so for the next several weeks, we're looking at things in our life to commit to God so that we can see the things of God more clearly in our life and the life of the church. And so some of these are going to be habits and disciplines, things to, to start up, things you may already be doing, but to understand why we're doing those things and why we're committing those things. Because when we commit things, it, it can make us a little uncomfortable. Some of us may be in the midst of committing to a new habit of working out or dieting or things like that. And so you've gone through the uncomfortable stages or maybe quitting certain habits and that change is is making you uncomfortable and that's what commitments do they can make us uncomfortable and so the next several weeks we're going to be looking at different commitments that we're going to be making that we're called to make through the word of God that are going to make us a little uncomfortable but it's all for the sake of our godliness and growing up in the faith um, so we have we have two passages of scriptures you can see behind me and uh, one thing I want to challenge us all to do is to commit to memorizing these um, and that way we've got them stored up in our mind our heart the first one comes from Proverbs 16:3 where it says, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will succeed. Did I get that right? All right, good. See, I, see, I got that one going. Now, this next one is out of Psalms 37, uh, 5 through 6, 5 through 6. Yes, all right. I'm, I'm still working on it. See, I'm working with you. I'm, I'm not trying to do something. Now, I got the first part of this one. Commit your ways to, you, to the Lord and trust in Him. And then the second verse I'm still working on. He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as a light and your justice as the noonday. And just... So when we did that point, like, why am I doing this? And we did that point, it's hard. We can just have these words stored up in our mind. This is why I'm committing to doing this. This is why I'm going through this act. It's because I'm committing things to the Lord, and I'm going to, I want to see Him act in my life. I want to see Him working. I want to see the things that I do in my life have success. And that doesn't always mean worldly success. Um, that doesn't mean, like, wealth and things like that. It means just success spiritually, success with God, success in being used by God. I graduated from uh, SBU uh, back in 2002 of December, so almost 20 years been out of college, and that's hard to realize. And I learned a lot of things at SBU as a student, but there are two things that really stuck with me that I still do to this day, and that's the commitment that we're looking at this morning. And the first one was reading my Bible. And it's not that I didn't read my Bible on a daily basis, it's not, or I didn't read my Bible out of church, but I wasn't very committed to that habit of always reading my Bible, being in the Word of God and, and reading it. And I don't want to make this sound like a legalistic thing where, you know, um, you've know, you got to be in the Bible every single day and you've got to read so many chapters every single day or whatever. But we need to be in God's Word. We need to be reading and allowing God speak into our hearts and our minds. And, and so I learned that through my college roommate. Uh, we had a lot of strange conversations at times in our, in our college dorm room, but one of the conversations came up is, so what are you reading in the Bible right now? And I did not have an answer for that because I wasn't presently reading anything in the Bible. I had enough reading to go with classwork and schoolwork that I wasn't spending time in the Bible. And so it really challenged me at that moment to begin reading the Bible and making that a daily habit of doing so. The second one came through not just my college roommate, but was emphasized more with my professors, and that was studying the Bible. And, and there's a huge difference between reading the Bible and studying the Bible. And I'm not going to really spend a whole lot of time this morning dealing with the idea of reading the Bible. Here's about as far as I'm going to deal with it. Read your Bible, okay? If you need to make a notation of that, go ahead. But read your Bible. If you need to um, find a Bible plan to get into it. I know we're on the January 12th, and so if you start one, you may or may not finish it by the end of the year, if it, you read day by day. But find a Bible plan. You can find them online. You can download apps and set the notification to buzz you that, hey, you didn't read your Bible yet, or you didn't say you read your Bible yet. You can put it in your own calendar. Um, you can have, I, I've been doing that for a while. I also have hard copies. I, I have mine with me right here. I'm actually well ahead uh, this year. I'm on day 84. And uh, for the year, so yes, 
overachiever. Thank you. Appreciate it. Man, are y'all all right? I know it's cold. Yay. Thank you. All right. yeah. Pastors need to be lifted up too, okay? And so, um, but if you, if you would like a hard copy, because I, like I said, I've used digital stuff before, but for some reason I like just being able to have my Bible and I can, I usually put it in there and uh, I can just pull it out and I can read whatever I want. And, and you know, if the internet goes down or electricity goes out, God forbid, um, but it does, um, I can have that and I can get right into it. And so if you'd like a copy, I can just let me know and I can print you off what I use. I've got two different formats. One is just to read through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Um, it's usually about three to four chapters a day. And then the other one is a chronological reading plan, which is what I'm doing this year, which is to take the Bible and, and to put it in the order that you could read it historically or the timeline that it would be in. Because if you don't know, the Bible's not written chronologically. Um, so anyway, I can help you out. I can give you that. That's what I'm, we're doing. Um, but read your Bible. So you got that down in your notes, those who take notes? Okay, first thing, read your Bible. What we're going to be talking about this morning, focusing the majority of our time on, is studying the Bible. Um, and, and the reason we're going to do this, and we're going to do it a little bit differently, we're, I, we're going to study a passage of Scripture together, um, and we're going to work through it together, and I want to give you four categories to use when you study the Bible. And the reason we're going to spend the majority of our time on this is the Bible tells me as a pastor, my job is to equip and edify the saints for the work of the ministry. And in my time in ministry, one thing I've encountered over and over again on people, why they don't get involved in ministry is this. I feel I don't know enough about the Bible. And maybe you've said that before. You know, I really would want to get involved in helping teaching or children's church or with youth or, or you know, Bible study. But I feel I don't know enough, and that would come out. That would be a weakness. That's also the reason why some people don't get into Bible studies in small groups, because they feel or fear that if they actually share what they think and it's really wrong, they're going to be embarrassed. And so there are tools out there you can use to study the Bible. Um, if you want to throw that next slide up there about the four categories. There are tools out there, like you can, you can buy resources online, you can, you know, and get them shipped to you. You can find things online to help you. Um, I, the, you don't have to, I'm not charging you anything for this today, so you're welcome. Um, this is completely uh, what God has led to do. But these are the four categories we're going to look at in a passage of Scripture when it comes to studying the Bible. Because I want you to be able to go home this week and begin to apply these principles. So... One application you're going to have before we get out of here is to apply what we're talking about in studying the Bible. As God's people, we should be studying what God says in His Word. And there's some things in His Word that can be kind of difficult to understand and things that we don't even know why that's there. And we're going to actually use a passage of Scripture that I'm guessing, if we were to be reading it, we would read over it very quickly because it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of meat there. You'll see here in a second. The first thing is observation. When it comes to observation, what we're doing is we are reading a passage of Scripture, a text, a story, a verse, and we're not seeking to interpret it yet. All we're doing is we're seeking to understand what does it say? What is going on here? What, who is talking? What are they talking about? The most important aspect of studying Scripture is to come with Scripture with questions. You want to bombard the text with questions. You want to ask questions and then seek the answers. But in observation, all I'm doing is I'm, I'm asking questions. And when I'm asking questions, this is why I have the whiteboards here, is I'm writing those things down, those questions, but I'm not seeking to answer those yet. All I'm doing is observing. So there's things that are jumping out to me. There's things that I'm, I'm noticing, things that seem kind of relevant. So so-and-so is talking to so-and-so and they're talking about this. Um, again, I'm not seeking to get the meaning of it yet. Um, this is happening at this location. This is happening at this time of day. Um, I'm just observing. What is, what is going on in the text? What is going on in the story? What is going on in the passage? That's going to lead me to the next part of interpretation. When it comes to interpretation, I want to seek what does this mean? And this is where I think we did a lot. We, 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 we have issues with and what does the scripture actually saying? What is it saying to us. And one important aspect of interpretation is this word, context. Context is so important when it comes to Scripture because if we take something out of context, then we misinterpret Scripture. And we can say, well, this means this, or I think this means this, and that may not be what God intended for it to say at all. And so we have to understand context. And so if you're in our small group who's meeting tonight, this is what we're going to be doing tonight. But um, 
let's say we are studying as a group, we're studying the verse John 3.16 because we've heard it numerous times or we're somewhat familiar or maybe that one verse we have memorized. And so we're studying John 3.16. Well, to understand John 3.16 better and deeper, we need to understand the context of which John 3.16 was said. Jesus was, did not get to John 3.16 and said, And John 3.16, for God so loved the world. This was in the midst of a conversation. So we want to read John 3 and get the context of the conversation to which that verse comes out of. And if you read John 3, you see that Jesus is speaking with a man named Nicodemus and they're meeting at night and they're struggling. Nicodemus is struggling to understand what Jesus is presenting to him. And in the midst of that conversation, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, comes out. And so if I'm studying that verse, I want to understand the context to which that verse is going. This also keeps us from misinterpreting passages of Scripture in the New Testament as well. There's a lot of passages in the New Testament that appear on like cross-country posters or football posters or t-shirts that are implying one thing, but that's not the context of the verse. When Paul speaks about you know, being content in all things, he goes on to say, For through Christ I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The context of that passage is not that Paul's going to have superhuman ability, he's going to make the winning touchdown or have the knockout punch. The context of that passage is Paul saying that if I have very little and scrapping it by, or if I have plenty, I can do anything that God puts before me because he strengthens me to do it. And so I'm content in all circumstances. So you see how context is important. So we're asking what does it mean? For example, if I say the word pen, what comes to mind? Pen. Something you write with. All right, that's the first thing that's coming to my mind. Thank you. Was that you, Bridget? Appreciate it. All right. So, but if, if I'm not, so pen is P-E-N. I, I think my spelling's okay with that one. But what if I'm not talking about that sort of pen? What if I'm talking about P-I-N? So how would that change the context of the word, Jason? Okay, this is why we dismiss children to children's church, because we have these sort of... Okay, so you pin the tail on the donkey, a bowling pin, wrestling, you got to pin somebody. And so you see how just the spelling of the word changes the definition of the word. So I need to know, it can't, I need to know what pin is used in the context of it's being used. And the same thing goes with scripture. We need to understand the context of a verse, of a passage, of a word. How is it being used so I can understand the full meaning and the depth of what is being said? And so this takes, goes through different questions I'm going to be asking when it comes uh, to, you know, what is going on? How does this, what is being said here? And sometimes when we go to interpretation, we'll, I'll show you here in a second, when we get to our passage, is we can read other translations of Scripture to help us understand a little bit more of the context and our interpreting. But we want to ask, what does this mean? And we, the danger of interpretation is we don't want to begin with, what does this mean to me? And I think we always want to jump there. What does this passage mean to me? How does this relate to me? That's application. What we're asking is, what did this mean to the original readers of this? What did this mean to the original writer of this? And once we get that interpretation, then we're, we're, we're safer from misinterpreting the passage of Scripture and taking it out of context. Next one is correlation. What do other verses say about this particular passage or this particular verse. There are some verses in Scripture that seem very similar to other passages you can find throughout Scripture. And so what, what, what other verses help me understand what's going on or what's being said, what's being talked about, what's being taught in this moment? The best source to study Scripture and understand Scripture is Scripture itself. So we use Scripture to understand Scripture. There are commentaries, there are incredible writers out there and theologians, and we can go to them, but we always want to stay within the context of Scripture first, and then we go to outside sources like commentaries. When you go to, if you don't know what a commentary is, don't let that word freak you out. If you know what a commentary is, word of caution with commentaries. They are written by human beings who have perspectives. Okay, And so not every commentary is law or biblical. And so you have to read it through the lens that, okay, this person is flawed by sin and he has a perspective or she has a perspective. And they also have an agenda. And so you have to read, okay, 
what is actually I can take as truth and gold and what is actually kind of just being put out there maybe as an agenda or things like that. So you've got to read through like the fine print. So now that I've correlated, is there anything else in the Bible that helps me understand this passage? I come to application, which is key when it comes to studying Scripture. Because if we just do observation and interpretation and correlation and we don't come to application, how does, what am I going to do to this? How does this apply to my life? What is God trying to teach me or rebuke me or train me or correct me in righteousness? If we fail to do application in the Bible, Jesus' words, by the way, says we are foolish. That's what Jesus says. If you just hear his words but don't do those words, then you are foolish. James says, don't deceive yourselves and be hearers of the words only, but be doers of the word. And so we have to come to application, and this is the hard part. This is the, the heart inspection part. What is God trying to tell me? What do I need to, what in this passage do I need to apply to my life? How do I need to uh, live this out? What am, how, do, how am I not living this out at this moment? What sort of changes do I need to make in my life? Is there something I need to repent of? Is there, is there something that's keeping me from doing what Scripture is saying I should be doing? These are all parts of application. They're, they're difficult questions. We get to that after we've observed interpreted, we've, and we've got the proper interpretation of Scripture. We've, we've seen other Scriptures to back up our interpretation. That's the correlation. We compare, we correlate Scripture with one another. So let's do this together, now that we've got all our, our nice words up. Okay, so everybody go to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 19 through 30. And I picked this passage of Scripture out for this particular reason. When we read verses 19 through 30, and when I'm reading in my own Bible right now, I do not have anything underlined or highlighted or noted, whereas I go to other parts of Philippians, there are things like little nuggets that I have underlined and I've starred and I've put boxes around. When we're studying Scripture, there is a temptation. We get to a certain portion of Scripture that we'll read it and be like, well, there's not anything going on. There's no doctrinal meat. There's no doctrinal truth just jumping out. I mean, Paul isn't making these statements like, I know how, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. And in every, every circumstances, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. And so I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Paul isn't making statements like that in this moment. Here's what we know about Scripture or what we should know. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 through 17, it says that all Scripture is breathed out by God. I mean, God has spoken all of this and is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training of righteousness so that the man of God may be perfect and complete for every good work. You read in 2 Peter, it says that no Scripture came by man's own interpretation, but the Holy Spirit guided and led it. And so what that tells us about Scripture, and those are just two passages, is that what we have in the Bible is not just words on a page, it's not just another book, but this was something that God spoke, the Spirit drove, and man began to write out. So it was not man's own interpretation, it wasn't something they made up, but we believe, because this is God's Word, it is perfect, it is infallible, um, that God had His hand on it. And so when we read it, even these strange little passages of the Scripture, there's something in there to which God wants to speak to us. And so when we come to a passage of Scripture like the one we're going to read, we'll read it in a second, because that's the first step of Bible study. You have to read it. Um, when we come to these passages, we want to ask, okay, what, why did God put this here? What, what is this here that is useful for, for me for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training of righteousness? Because there has to be a purpose. God has purpose for everything He does. So there has to be a reason for it. So first part of Bible study is we've got our Bible, right? We've got something we're going to take notes on. If you're not taking notes, you're not studying the Bible. You're just kind of reading it over and over again. And so it doesn't have to be like something you write. Maybe you're one of those digital people. I prefer like notebooks. So like when school supplies come out, uh, for like in you know, May when they let out of school and the school supplies are already out for the next year, I go and stock up on those notebooks, those single notebooks, because they're like 10, 15 cents. I go grab some cheap pens, and I just stock them up. I still have a stack in my office. I think I've got about 10 left in my office. I'll, I'll give you one if, if you don't want to go buy one. I'll give you one of mine. I'll share. Um, but I'll have a notebook. I'll have a pen. I've got the Bible. That's the difference between reading the Bible and studying the Bible. When I'm reading the Bible, I'm just reading it. When I'm studying the Bible, I'm taking notes. I'm asking questions. I'm digging deep into God's truth. I want to, I want to bring it out because I know it's good and I want to taste it, right? Okay, so I've got my Bible. 
I've got something. We've got something to write on. We've got our passage of Scripture. Now we're going to read it. Philippians chapter 2, verse 19. It'll be up here on the screen, too, if you like. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. As a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Verse 25. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am, more the, I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete that was lacking in your service to me. So we've read the passage of Scripture. And when I'm going to study the Bible, here's a thing that will help you. It has helped me. Don't just read it one time. Read it multiple times. Um, and we're building context when we get to interpretation. We want to know what's being said before this and what's being said after this. Read it quietly. Another thing that's really helped me in studying Scripture is reading it out loud. Allowing, because it takes more brain waves to focus and more brain waves to go through it. I'm hearing the Word of God. I'm saying the Word of God. Maybe you're one of those audible book people. Listen to it. You know, find some cool actor you love his or her voice and let them read it to you. If, I mean, but get, get different ways where you can hear the Word of God. We want to read it over and over again because we want to become familiar with the passage of Scripture. Okay, that's part of observation. I want to become familiar with what is going on. Now, since we're jumping in this, we're, gonna, we're all role-playing. So in the midst of, of studying this passage of Scripture, we're going to pretend that we are doing our own little personal study on the book of Philippians. All right? So since we're doing a book study on the book of Philippians, and we've come to this passage of Scripture, we've come across a lot of good nuggets, but we most likely have done some background on the book of Philippians. And so that's going to help us in building some context and some of what Paul is, is, is led to write here. Okay, I just gave you the first question. So who wrote, who wrote Philippians? Good. Some of y'all were just listening like two minutes ago. Who wrote Philippians? Paul. What do we know about Paul? Who knows anything about Paul? Okay, Paul was an apostle. Do I know what an apostle is? Maybe, maybe not. I know it's pretty important, right? Okay. Apostle is basically an eyewitness, someone that Jesus has commissioned personally to go and preach the gospel. Not all people were going to be apostles, and I do not believe with interpreting Scripture that apostles still exist today. So if someone says that they're an apostle, then you say, okay, when did you meet Jesus? Because he hadn't come back yet, right? All right. Anyway, ha. So he's an apostle. What else did Paul do? Okay, so before, before he was Paul, he was Saul, and he persecuted the church, but now he's doing what with the church? He's ministering, and he's like a church planter, and he's a missionary. Okay, so Paul wrote this, this letter. Who's receiving the letter? The, the Philippians, right? <laughs> the Philippi's. Um, okay, so Phil. Philippi is a city in Greece. It's a church which Paul planted. See, this is just some of the background we've got. Um, a way to get background, uh, it, this is, I'm not trying to sell stuff, and you can't buy this, um, but I guess you can have it if you want it, really need it. This is a study Bible. I would recommend every family, every family, not every person, but at least every family, have one study Bible in their house. And this is a CSB. Um, this is one I had in my office. And in a study Bible, to get some context and background, when it introduces a book, like so, it's also going to give you background of the author, the recipients, the purpose of the letter, some things that come out in the letter, some things that maybe people are struggling with the letter. And so you get a lot of background. And it's not in, too in-depth. I mean, you can definitely get deeper. But these are great tools to have at your house um, for the family or for, or for your couple or whatever. And so... Paul's writing to Philippi. It's a church he planted. But in our own verse, it says that 
verse 23 and 24, he's sending Timothy, and he's waiting to see what's going on, what's going to happen with him, but he's trusting the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. And so in our background of Philippians, where is Paul at this moment? Why can't he come himself? He's in jail, right? You may know where he's at in jail, because he was arrested a couple times, but... Rome, good guess, thank you. Um, <laughs> he's in Rome, and the reason we know it's in Rome, because we know that Paul has liberties to write, he has visitors coming in and out, and so he has these liberties going on, and so he is writing to the Philippians. Matter of fact, when you read the majority of the New Testament, who's written by the Apostle Paul, the titles of the book let you know the location of where that letter's going, or the individual to which that letter is meant for, like Timothy and Titus and Philemon. And so Paul didn't give, you know, Paul wasn't writing a letter and he named it Philippians. That's just the name that got attached to it as we began to compile the New Testament. Not we, but other people who are smarter. Um, so Paul's in prison. He's in Rome. He's writing to the church in Philippi. He's giving them instructions on how to live in a world that is hostile to Christianity. Huh. Which Paul has felt firsthand, right? And so... He's giving them instructions, but he's also, the letter of Philippians is kind of like a thank you note to this church. Because while Paul, while Paul is in Rome and in prison, this church is continuing to send money so to support his ministry because Paul's deepest desire is to take Christianity or the gospel on into the rest of the known world. And so they're continuing to support him. But Paul can't come to the church to get that financial support. And so now we have some background, now we have some context of what's going on, and this brings us to our passage. But we've already done that before we got this passage. So Paul is writing to this church, and with our passage, verses 19 through 30, what do we observe? That's the first step. I'm not trying to interpret, what do we observe that Paul is writing about? This doesn't have to be fancy, just... What? Okay. He's sending Timothy. Okay? What else do we observe? Just, just looking at the text. What is going on? Is it just Timothy? Yeah, that, that cool name, right? Okay, and how do we get there from the observation? Okay, so we know we know that he has a connection to this church, right? We can know that just from our own passage of Scripture. We don't need to know why that's important yet. All we're doing is observing. All we're doing is making little notes. Do any, does any questions pop up in your head with the text? There's not a dumb question when it comes to studying Scripture. After we start interpreting, we may realize, oh, I already know that answer now. But Okay, that's a great question. Why these two? We know Paul had other people that travel with him, other people that visit him. Why specifically these two individuals? That's a great question. We're observing the text. What else are we questions? Things that just jump out, things that maybe you didn't see before. Okay, so he instructs them how to receive them. which may help us understand why these two. Anything else? Sure, we'll just call him Ep. <laughs> okay. Paphro almost died.
which again, we're reading Scripture through the lens of Scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed. So there's some reason that God led Paul to write about these particular men, to write that certain incident that he almost died. So all we're doing is observing. So I came up with three things, and, and you all kind of hit on them already. Paul sends, intends to send two men to Philippi. We got that. Verse 19, hope in the Lord Jesus sent Timothy to you. Verse 25, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. Okay, so guide number one, number two. Second thing I observed is Paul gives these two an endorsement. And so he, that's part of our instructions how to receive. Just because you all, you word it differently, that's, that's fine. But we all realized there was instructions on how to receive about these two individuals. He says of Timothy in verse 20, I have no one like him. And here's the thing, when I'm reading scripture and I'm reading when, when Paul the Apostle Paul, who's in prison for preaching the gospel, is saying about another individual, I have no one like him. I should allow that. There's something there I need to figure out. And if you put it in the context of, like, of our life, and we say, what if you know, Billy Graham has passed on and he's gone home? But if he was alive, and he wrote a letter, or in the middle of his message, he's saying, I'm sending Charlie Buchanan to you, church, because I have no one like Charlie. Now, as someone we felt credited with Christianity and, and we looked up to and respected as a believer in Christ said that about us, how would we feel? Whew. Yeah, all right, I'm going to get a t-shirt now. <laughs> so we need to know what makes Timothy so different, but we're going to come back. We're just observing. But he endorses both of them. He says that both of them need to be honored. About Epaphroditus, he says that he should be honored that both of these individuals they're unusual they're unique they're worthy of honor so these when we look at timothy and apophroditus these are two types of individuals automatically as we're observing scripture there's something about these two men which we hit on why these two that i should want to know more about because they're different there's something that these two men can teach me that i should be applying to my life so I can be different in this world. And so Paul says five things about these guys. Verse 20, he says about Timothy, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Okay, so if I have a note, and I, I'm doing, I'm, okay, so Tim, Tim is genuinely concerned. Not trying to, to figure out what that means yet. I'm just trying to figure out about these individuals. About, Apoph, or about Timothy, in verse 22, it says, you know Timothy's Proven worth. So Timothy has proven worth. In verse 25, what does it say about Epaphroditus? Who is he, though? Okay, he's a brother. He's a soldier. He's a minister to my need. And kind of what Jason hit on just a little while ago, we also know that Epaphroditus is most likely from this church because he says that he is your messenger. So he has this connection to, to, to Philippians. Okay? It says in verse 26, Oh, brother, soldier, oh, and worker. Fellow worker as well, right? So verse 26, he says, For he has been longing for you and has been distressed. That's again about Epaphroditus. So he's been longing, been distressed for some reason. We know he almost died. And then also says about his almost death, he's risking his life. And so what we've done simply by observation is we see that Paul is led by the Holy Spirit to bring up these two individuals who he's sending to the church of Philippi. He's felt led to endorse them as role models, telling the believers of Philippi, you need to honor these two men for, for a reason. And then he gives us five characteristics of each of these individuals, right? They're genuinely concerned. He has proven worth. He's a brother, soldier, a worker. He's a minister to my need. Okay, so we have, and he risked his life. So we've got five things about these guys that we're going to move into interpretation because I want to know what do these things mean that make these two guys so unique? So this is what we're doing in our study. So we're getting to now what does it mean? So I'm looking at these characteristics that I've drawn out from these individuals. 
And the first one says that I have no one like him. Verse 21. Why is no one like Timothy? Well, verse 20 says that he will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Verse 21, for they all seek their own interests. And there's two people when we come to Scripture that we're looking at here in verse 20 and 21. Timothy will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. Well, who are the they? Well, the they is playing in opposition to who Timothy is. And we know Timothy is one that Paul trusted. Paul looks at him in his own passage of Scripture as his spiritual son, one who's come along with him in the gospel and the ministry, one who's continuing to prove himself as Paul's going along in his ministry. And so the they is the opposite of what Timothy is. And so Paul's saying about Timothy, one who's genuinely concerned for you, is that Timothy is not like the people of this world. Timothy actually cares about you. Timothy actually cares about other people. He's, he's not like everyone else. They look, on, they look out for their own interest, but Timothy does not. And you know this because he's proven it to you. You've been eyewitnesses to what Timothy's done. And so one thing we can do when we go to interpret Scripture, like I mentioned, is about going to different translations. And so this passage of Scripture and other translations says, Timothy genuinely cares for you while, while others only care about themselves. Well, that helps me a little bit, what Paul's trying to say there. And the other one says, they're all wrapped up in their own affairs, which is meaning that Timothy is not. And so I learned something as I'm interpreting this passage of Scripture about a godly individual that I can come back and look at my application. A godly individual is caring. And that might be like, you know, mind-blown at the moment, but when I get to application, it might become more so. A godly individual is caring. Now, I can go on, you all have, like, smartphones or computers, and so another tool you can use is a dictionary. <laughs> and you type in a word, caring, and you get definitions or synonyms to that word. And the word caring, when it comes to speaking of an individual, means that they are compassionate. They are unselfish. They think about others. They are not self-centered. A caring individual has sympathy and empathy. And so Paul is saying about Timothy, Timothy is worthy of your honor believers in Philippi, because he is a caring individual. And don't just take my word for it. Paul says in verse 22, you know Timothy's proven worth. Another translation says, you know what kind of person Timothy proved to be. And so I said, okay, proved. I'm not even getting the Greek or Hebrew. I'm just going to look up proven. The word proven means tested, verified, checked out, determined, reliable. And so I learned something else about a godly individual. Not only is a godly individual caring, but a godly individual is consistent. Timothy has proven himself to these believers. He has been consistent. He has character. He has something that you can trust. He is dependable. He is faithful. He's an individual that when he says something, you can take it to the bank that he means it. He has conviction. And so I'm already learning some things and interpreting Scripture about who these people are from, from the questions I've been asking and things I've been observing. What about my buddy Epaphroditus? He says in verse 25, I send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. And those are all relational metaphors. He's my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier. He also says he's your messenger and minister to my need, which lets us know Epaphroditus it's from this area that the church of Philippi at least sent him to Paul. But these relational aspects, he's my brother, my fellow worker, my soldier, lets us know, and this is just a preacher in me, I'm sorry, but a godly individual is cooperative. They're able to work along with other people. They get along with people, which lets us know that godly individuals don't. And so when people aren't getting along, we know that's not godliness. We know that's not an attribute of godliness. And so something needs to be rebuked in that. And so I could jump to application, and is there anybody in my life that I'm not being cooperative with? Is there a reason I'm not being cooperative with that person? Is there something I need to seek reconcilia reconciliation with with that person? But I see that a 
godly individual is cooperative. It also lets us know a little about the Christian life. He uses those three metaphors. Brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier. The Christian life, it's a family. It's a fellowship. It's a fight. He's my brother. In the New Testament, the word brother and sister is the most common phrase used for Christians, particularly in the letters, because we're a family. We belong together because we belong to God. And so we look out for one another as a family. We take care of one another as a family. We're also a fellowship. The word fellowship doesn't mean like Baptist buffets or banquets or meals. or anything. Fellowship in the Bible means that we're sharing our lives and our resources with one another. That's why he's, he's my brother and he's my fellow worker because he's sharing the work with me. But he's my soldier. Now, when I think of soldier, I think of one thing. But what do you all think of? When you think of a soldier, what do you think of? A knight? You say, Butch? Fights? War? It lets me know that though Christianity and this is a nice set of gathering, that the Christian life is also a battle. It's a war. But the beauty of it is that I have a family. I have fellow workers who are in this battle with me. And guess what? We're all battling the same person or same thing, and that's Satan. And so we use one another. We work together with one another because we're a family. We're a fellowship. But a godly individual has to be cooperative in order for that to happen. And the only reason that doesn't happen is if, if we are becoming selfish and conceited and we're not caring and we're not being consistent to the Word of God. But Paul understood, as I understood, as you need to understand, that we need each other. I need you to strengthen me in my faith, and you need me to strengthen you in your faith, and we need each other to strengthen one another in our faith. We work together as a family, as a fellowship, as brothers and sisters in Christ, because we're all in the same battle. So we do this together. That only goes with my relationship with God, but that goes with the ministry. Then Paul writes in verse 26, He has been longing for you all and has been stressed because you heard that he was ill. He's again speaking of Epaphroditus. He uses emotional words. He's been longing. He's been distressed. Well, when I'm longing for something, what does that mean? Some of y'all are longing for a hamburger right now. What does that mean? Oh, okay, something you really want. It's on your mind. It's just it's consuming your thought process. Some of y'all are going to long for a nap here in a couple hours. Don't do it right now. A couple hours. You know? It's something that's just going to overwhelm you and overtake you. When I'm distressed about something, what does that mean? Okay, I could be anxious about it. I could be worried about it. Again, like the longing, it's overwhelming me. It's causing a reaction in a certain way. He says about Epaphroditus that he's longing and distressed for you. Well, what in the world's going on here? Why is Epaphroditus longing and distressed for this church? Well, what we can gather because we've done Philippians background, and now we're in this passage. Epaphroditus is from this church. And so this church has taken up a love offering. That's been our background to Philippians. He's taken up this love offering, but the church needs to do it to Paul. But Paul's in, in, in prison where? Rome. Okay, so good. We're all still with... Come on. We're studying Scripture. This is awesome. All right, so Paul is going to receive this love offering, but he can't come get it because he's in prison where? Rome. So the church in Philippi has a family meeting or a business meeting. They, I mean, it's probably some sort of gathering like that. And they say, all right, we need to get this to Paul. Who's going to take it? I'll do it. Epaphroditus says, I'll do it. And so we know that if they're entrusting Epaphroditus with this money, what, what can we guess about Epaphroditus? He's trustworthy. He's got character, too. And Epaphroditus is going to have to make a choice when he makes this commitment. You've got to keep in mind, he can't get an airplane ticket. He can't get a bus ticket. He can't hop in his car. This dude's going to have to walk. He's going to have to be on boats. He's going to have to be out in elements where it's been known for robbers and thieves to jump people who are traveling. There's no Motel 6 on the way. He's going to have to leave his business and his job and his family. He's going to have to leave, leave everything he knows, and he's going to have to go. And he does. And on the way, it says in verse 27, 
that he was ill and near death. So he goes on this trip, he volunteers for it, he's taking his money, and on the trip, when he's doing the work of God, he's doing the mission of God, what happens to him? Gets sick. Man, that's not prosperity gospel. What's up with that? He's doing what God led him to do, and he gets sick to the point of death. And God said, and Paul writes, but God showed mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So here's Paul in prison, shackled. He's got people coming in and out. He can visit, but he cannot leave until he can get face to face with Caesar. And he says, you know what? If Epaphroditus, if something were to have happened to him as he's bringing this love offering to me in prison, I would have had sorrow upon sorrow in my life. That's an individual who's not thinking of himself, right? Just like a povertyitis is not thinking of himself because I learned a godly individual has to be considerate. They think of others before themselves. They love others before themselves. They love their enemies. They pray for their enemies. They're considerate. They're not the type of individual that blabs out their mouth whatever comes off the top of their head. But there are people in the church who do this. They say whatever they think they need to say, and they just, well, you know, I just, I just say whatever's on my mind. That's not a considerate person. That's a child person. Children cannot control what comes out of their mouth. But if I'm going to be a godly individual, I'm going to be considerate, then I'm going to think about what I'm going to say and how I'm going to act. How is that going to impact the people around me? See, i got application there. Am I, is, is that what I'm doing? Am I a considerate person? But... It says about Epaphroditus, he's sick and he's near death. But in verse 26, in the midst of being sick and near death, he's longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. So Epaphroditus is such an individual, he is sick and he is distressed because other people are distressed that he's sick, even though he's on the verge of death. Now, anybody here when you're sick, are you thinking about what other people are thinking about? Either let me die or let me heal. I mean, that's basically the only thing on my mind. You can bring me water or crackers, but make sure that I can get to the bathroom quickly. That's about the only thing on my mind. I don't care. Sorry, Jamie, I love you, but I do not care what you think at this moment as I am puking out my guts. I'm not distressed about what you're, you're distressed about. But Epaphroditus, in the midst of being near death because of this illness, he's distressed because this church is distressed about him. What a godly individual. Despite what's going on in his life, he's still concerned about other people. We also learn that a godly individual has to be courageous. Because, oh, misspelled it. Epaphroditus, despite being sick, despite being near death, if we were to read on, we would see that Epaphroditus comes up later in chapter 4. He actually fulfilled his mission. That's why Paul is able to send him back to the church. Now, how many of us, and this is a great morning to ask this question. I'm glad you all are here. But how many of us look for almost any excuse not to do something we know we should do? How many of us were tempted this morning? Oh, it's so cold. It's probably slick. I could just stay home. I know other people will. Let's just be honest. I'll, I'll rat you out. It's not being inconsiderate. <laughs> I had a lot of texts and calls last night. Are we having church tomorrow? It was on people's minds, at least. I, and I knew it was, it was on mine. That's what I drove around. But a godly individual is courageous. They're risk takers. Epaphroditus was willing to be so uncomfortable physically for the kingdom of God. And so I can, that's an application right there. Is there, am I being a risk taker for the kingdom of God? Am I courageous for the kingdom of God? My iPad's turning on me, it's, it's coming alive. Fun. Um, Am I willing to be uncomfortable for the kingdom of God? And if I'm not, why? 
Am I afraid of something? Am I ashamed of something? So these are all applications that we get just from this passage, and we haven't even got the correlation. Just real quick for the sake of time. When it comes to correlation, I'm comparing Scripture. So I'm going to say, okay, is there anything else in Scripture I can learn about Timothy or Epaphroditus? Well, Epaphroditus is only mentioned one other time in Scripture, and that's in Philippians chapter 4. We know he succeeded in bringing the love offering to Paul, and now Paul's sending him back, and, and, he, and he's giving him honor. But Timothy, where can I find my buddy Timothy anywhere else in Scripture? Okay, first and second Timothy. I mean, Paul just points right there. There you go. So I can go and read, and I can read what Paul writes to Timothy and learn more about this individual. I, I can compare and contrast. okay, do these things match up to what I saw? I can go in the book of Acts when Paul comes across Timothy, invites him to the ministry, and I can say, okay, can I see Timothy's proven worth in these things? And so I'm comparing, so, so I, I'm making sure that I'm not jumping to a conclusion of Scripture that's not there in Scripture. And then what I can do, let's say I want to know more about these things because I want to be this type of person in life. I want to be someone that other Christians can say, I'm sending them to you because they have proven their worth not only to me, but to you. And so I can go in Scripture, and I brought this with me. This strong, exhaustive concordance, it looks really good on a bookshelf because it's a big book. And if you're not familiar, basically you can look up any word and it'll give you a reference to another passage of Scripture that has that word. And so I can get this book. I, I'd recommend you having one of these. But here's the good news. You don't have to buy one of these. Y'all, are you still taking notes? I knew this was going to be a long message. That's why Jackson only sang two songs. Okay. So. <laughs> www.bible.com gateway.com. I think that's right. BibleStudyTools.com. Bible Study Tools. Or Bible Gateway. Either one. You go in there and you go into Bible. You hit that tab. It draws down. It says Keyword Search. You hit that tab and you go and you type in a word and then you click. And you can narrow it down to one book of the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the entire Bible. You can narrow down anything. So Let's say, I'm going to go, I want to know what it is to be a courageous Christian. So I'm going to look up the word courage in the Bible and see what God's word says about having courage. So I type in courage, I hit click on this keyword search, and it brings up all these things. And one particular verse that would jump out to me because we just went through it here at church is out of Joshua, where God tells, tells the Joshua, be strong and courageous over and over again. And then he says, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. And so I can know that if I want to be a courageous individual, i got to make sure this thing doesn't depart from my mouth or depart from my heart that is actually in there. I've got to be attached to this. And so I'm, I'm, I'm investigating more and getting more Bible study and, and I'm finding other scriptures to help me understand what it means to be this type of person in life. And then application, which is always the hardest part. Because application is basically a heart inspection. In application, I'm coming to this point, okay, am I, am I this type of person? And if I'm not, why aren't I? Is there something in my life that's keeping me from being an individual which other believers would lift up and want to send to do the work of the kingdom of God? And, I, and this is hard because I really have to ask these questions about myself and allow the Spirit to investigate my heart. Is there something in my life that is keeping me from doing that? Is there a sin I need to confess? Is there something I need to repent of? Maybe it's just because I didn't know I should be doing these things. But maybe I failed to, and so I, I'm, I'm wanting to know, what am I going to do with what God has just shown me? So that's by our obscure passage in Philippians. Here's your application. Observation, interpretation, correlation, application. I want you to start practicing these principles. I want you to commit to these principles. You may have another means of studying Scripture that's working for you. That's good. This isn't like the only way you do it. But it's a simple way to do it. Because we need to be equipped for every good work that God has planned for not only us individually, but us as a church.
And God has brought every person here to be a part of the ministry God wants to do through Harvest Hill. And so I need to be in God's Word, not only reading it, but I need to be studying it. I need to understand what God has been trying to tell me from eternity. And what God is wanting to tell me from the throne room of heaven at this very moment in His Word. Just a heads up. As you can tell by this message, it's going to take time. <laughs> no amens? Dang. Tough crowd. It's going to take time. It's going to be frustrating. There's going to be times you're going to look at it and I don't, I don't see anything. It's going to happen. But that's why it's a commitment. Because I'm committing to doing this and I'm going to battle through this because I know God has something to say to me that applies to my life right here, right now. So put it into practice. If you already are doing this, some sort of Bible study on your own, and you have other means and other tools, share that with other people. Share with how you get into God's Word, how you study it, what comes out. Let us sharpen one another in the faith. The other thing for this morning is when it comes to Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus, what made them do what they did? Why did he do something to the point of death? Why was Timothy someone who had proven worth, even though Paul at other times says, you know, don't let people look down on you because of your youth or your age? What made Paul so important that he was able to write the majority of the New Testament? Here it is. They understood who loved them. And they want other people to know who loved them. They understood God loved them. And that moved them to action. Because they wanted other people to understand that God loved them. And you may be here this morning, and that's the message you just need to hear. God loves you. And the message that these three individuals represented was the gospel of Jesus Christ, where God demonstrated his love to the fullest. He sent his perfect son to die for our sins on a cross. They placed him in a tomb and he rose three days later. And it does not say my background. Paul, who was Saul, persecuted the church. And God demonstrated his love for Paul by saving him. So it does not matter your history or your background. God loves you through that and despite that. And you may be here this morning you need to begin a relationship with a God who loves you. And that begins through Jesus Christ. By admitting that you're a sinner and you fall short, you have things in your life you're not proud of, things in your life that you have regrets with. That's sin because it's out of God's will. It's out of His perfect plan for your life. And Jesus died for that sin. He took God's wrath, your punishment, my punishment, upon a cross for our sin, and He died. But he came out three days later, and the Bible says, when I believe that God loves me that much, even though I know who I am, and I believe Jesus died for my sins and rose again, and I believe that to be true in my heart, and I let it be known by my mouth, I confess it, the Bible says, I will be saved. And the word saved means I'm saved from the consequences of my sin, and I become a child of God, a brother and sister in Christ, adopted into his family. And you may be here this morning, and this is the message you needed to hear. God loves you, and he brought you here this moment so you could begin in a relationship with Him through Jesus Christ. If that's you, I'm going to be down here, and when Jackson's going to come up and lead us in a song, I'm going to invite you to come down and say, Pastor Mike, I want to be saved. I want to be forgiven. We'll pray together. We'll celebrate together. It'll be an awesome day. Maybe we walk through this, and you're kind of overwhelmed by it. Don't worry about it. I was too. I, I paid a lot of money at SBU to learn this stuff. <laughs> it overwhelmed me. But we just continue to work at it to the point that we develop it as a habit in our life. It just becomes natural. Okay? And maybe you just need to come to the Lord, just give me the strength and desire to put this into practice, commit to studying your word. This is time of invitation. It's time where we're not only hearers of a word, but we're doers. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your love and your mercy and your kindness. Thank you that your word prov proves true over and over again. 
that it gets into the depths of who we are, that it is living and active, even in the parts that seem like there's not a whole lot going on. Lord, there's so much that you want to say to our hearts and our lives and how we can live for you. Thank you for men like Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus who led the way to give us an example to follow, these pillars of the faith. Father, I ask you just raise us up as your children that we would follow an example laid out in your scripture, that we would be proven to this world, we would be different, not for our glory but for yours, that people would come to know you through the way we live our life. Thank for this day. Thank for the opportunity you lay before us, this challenge you've given us all. Praise all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand, let's sing. I invite you.